Thank you, Bonnie and Linda. Alrighty, if you have your Bibles, please open up to Genesis chapter 3. And I'm going to read it over real quick. We're going through verses 1 through 13. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may not eat of the fruit of the tree, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then their eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave To be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. May God bless the reading of his word. So far in Genesis, we've heard a lot of good, wonderful things. Uh, We've seen the creation of humanity. We've seen the creation of woman and man. We've seen God's provision for both of them in the garden. Uh, They're giving a place where they have sufficient food, sufficient water. Uh, They've given purpose to live, to breathe. And so in this next story, we see what goes wrong. Because obviously, we're not in the garden today, are we? We're not in that presence of the Lord where the Lord walks in our midst the way that he did with Adam and Eve. Um, And the question that we always have to ask is, why is that the case? Why is it the case that we are not in their situation? What happened that caused us to no longer be in that presence, to no longer be in the garden, in that place of sufficiency and provision? This is the story that tells us how this happened. So, starting with verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So chapter 3 begins with a sudden appearance of the serpent. We notice that the serpent is more crafty than any other beast of the field. The term crafty here comes from the word aram. This phrase is generally considered neutral. It is something which the Proverbs say is a virtue for the wise, though as we see here, it can also be understood as being nefarious, depending on how you use this craftiness. Um, Likewise, the word aram sounds very similar to the word used at the end of Genesis 2, which described the first man and woman as being naked. The word for naked there is arom. 
Thus, we see this play on words, perhaps, to show the difference between the snake and the humans. Whereas the humans were naked, blissfully unaware, the snake had shrewdness. They were nude, the snake was shrewd, is what one commentator said, and I thought that was funny. The serpent then talks to the yet unnamed woman. He asks a question. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Something we should notice right away is that this is not at all what God had said. God did not say that they were not able to eat from any tree, far from it. Instead, God said that they could eat from any tree but one. So we find immediately in the words of the serpent his shrewdness or his craftiness as he misrepresents God's command. Along with this, the narrator of the story specifically describes the serpent as a creature that the Lord God had made. As we remember, when the term is used in this way, it represents the covenantal name for God, which is Yahweh. So the Yahweh God had made. And the more generic name for God, which is Elohim. When the snake speaks, however, the covenantal name is ignored. It shows us that the snake is further separating God and his creatures by distorting his word and by making God into a faraway being rather than a close one. Now before we go any further, we do want to address something, and that is the coming of the snake at all. Who or what is it that we're dealing with? Many believe that the snake is um, or represents Satan. Others believe that the snake represents pagan myths at the time, which uh, were snakes and where snakes were venerated for their wisdom. Others hold that the snake represents the fertility cult of Canaan and the Baals, and to be seen as a warning against listening to them rather than the God of Israel. Still others believe that it represents the epic of Gilgamesh. Um, in that story, the hero, he finds the tree of life, he goes for a swim, And while swimming, a serpent steals the fruit from the tree of life, thereby the hero is unable to attain eternal life. Now the problem with many of these views is that it seems unlikely given what we are told in the text. We notice the serpent is considered to be a beast of the field. Thus, it can't be necessarily Satan because Satan is not a beast of the field. Likewise, it seems unlikely that the snake represents fertility goddesses of the Baals as everything created by God is good, whereas the Baals were certainly not good. Meanwhile, the Gilgamesh epic comes to the problem that the loss of eternal life by the hero is literally by dumb luck. The snake isn't very smart, it just so happens to eat the fruit. Um, it doesn't talk, the snake in the Gilgamesh epic. It doesn't convince the hero to go for a swim. It simply comes and takes the fruit. In our text, however... It's not dumb luck that causes them to lose life, but disobedience. Ultimately, we can be sure of two things. The first is that the snake presented is in fact a snake, it's a serpent. The second is that there is some darkness present, which was not present before. The text does not deal with where the darkness comes from. Nothing in Genesis has dealt with it. Whether it comes from a fallen angel or it comes from the woman's own curiosity, her own desires creeping up, we cannot be sure because the text is silent on the issue. Um, So the best we can do is guess. We're not 100% certain. Um, So yeah, verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The response of the woman is a correction against the serpent. We notice that she tells the serpent that they may eat of any tree, which is true. It's correct. Though she fails to mention the precise name of the tree, the one stipulation is that they are not allowed to eat or touch the tree in the midst of the garden. That's what she says. Yet we notice she adds something to God's command. God only said that they shall not eat of the tree. He never said that they were not allowed to touch it. In this way, the woman is already sounding similar to the serpent. Whereas the serpent misquoted the word of God, so the woman also misquotes God and adds unnecessary commands to what God commanded. Likewise, she takes on the snake's way of describing God, not as Yahweh God, but as Elohim, simply God. So while the emphasis for God was the provision of all the trees except one, the serpent and the woman focus on the one exclusion instead of the rest. The response from the serpent is the real dagger. Whereas previously the serpent simply misquoted God, now he goes full on against what God has said, at least in some respect. For as we notice, the truth is when they do eventually eat, they do not die. Likewise, God later says, after all, that they became like us. Yet as we can see, the serpent speaks, as all commentators note, in half-truths. The snake makes it appear that they would become like God, but this is the shrewdness of the snake. For though they will become like God in the knowledge that they gain, they also fall far away from God because of their disobedience. Likewise, the snake distorts them. They were already like God because God had made them male and female in his image and likeness. Not to mention the reality that they do end up dying. So in this way, the serpent, even if he is telling a half-truth, does ultimately deceive the woman because she will taste death just as God had promised. One other note is that we find a reversal of roles. The woman and the man are to be the stewards, the king and queen of this new realm. The animals are to be subjected to them. Here, however, we find them being persuaded by an animal. In a strange twist, the snake causes reversal to occur in nature. The final note to make is how the snake does not demand that she take the fruit herself. He is too shrewd for such a tactic. Instead, he gives her the ideas that will lead her into a devastating temptation, one which she will not be able to overcome. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was for good, good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who ate with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. We now come to the act of treachery. The act of disobedience which has haunted humanity ever since. We see three components to her temptation. The first is that the fruit was good for food. That is, it was edible. It would help a growling stomach. It was not inedible, but could be used to help with hunger. The second is that it was a delight to the eyes. In this, it was aesthetically pleasing. 
She is interested in the fruit because it looks delicious. One today might imagine seeing the perfect apple, um, if you're Libby, for example, or some of us who are not Libby, a perfect steak. You see it, and you think, that looks delicious. Or others who take pictures of their food when it looks nice, and then they put it all over Facebook, because that's what people do now. The final aspect is that it does what the serpent says it does. It is to be desired to make one wise. If one were to pursue wisdom, one would eat from this tree. One would grow an insight if they were to have it. Once all of the temptation components are set, we receive the result. She took of its fruit and ate. If the serpent did not correct her in her assumption that touching it would cause her to die, then the fact that she touches it and doesn't die may very well have been the tipping point for her eating it. Her assumption, remember, was that if she even touched or ate of it, she would die. God never said the first, only the latter. Thus, by touching it in her original fear, it was vanquished. And if that is the case, then why would she fear to eat it? So she eats, being deceived, but also willingly breaking the commandment which had been given. Once she takes and eats, she then gives some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. This is the interesting point. The man who was the original creation was there. The text does not say if he had been there for the conversation between the woman and the serpent, but it does show that he is there at least observing what the woman does. Instead of stopping her, instead of warning her, He says nothing. Once she has eaten and she doesn't die, then he falls into the trap as well, perhaps not believing the warning given by God for their disobedience. At that moment, their eyes are open, the text says. The insight which they had been promised by the serpent is revealed. They have knowledge. They have understanding, wisdom. Yet it is not the understanding they were expecting, for they immediately realize their nakedness their shame, and feel the need to cover themselves. So they went together, and they sewed up garments of fig leaves. Fig leaves were the largest leaves in Canaan. But the truth is, they were only to sew up some loincloths, nothing special. The leaves themselves would not be able to produce the kind of covering that they were seeking. Yet it remains a question, what were they hiding from? Were they hiding from themselves? Were they hiding from each other? Or were they hiding from God? Alrighty, verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The story continues with them hearing the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. The fact that they understood what the sound was may imply that this was custom. Is it possible that the creator and his created enjoyed conversations together? Is it possible that 
The God of the universe would walk with his creation, enjoying their company as they enjoyed his? To be honest, we're unsure. For if this all happened within a day or many days after the creation of the woman, the text doesn't make clear, so it's possible. But what we're sure of is that God comes to the garden, and when he does, the man and his wife hide from the presence of the Lord God. There is a sorrowful irony depicted. The last time the term man and wife was used was when the text described their nakedness and their lack of shame over it. Now when describing them, they are shamed, hiding their nakedness, hiding in their guilt. At this point, we find God calling to the man and saying, where are you? Some have tried to argue that this is God not really, literally not knowing where the man was, and therefore was literally trying to find him. But this seems unlikely. However, as the text specifically states that God called to the man. In other words, God knows exactly where the man is. It's similar when a child who is playing hide-and-seek with its parents, um, and the parents know exactly where the child is, but still ask where the child is. We do this all the time sometimes. Well, not really. They're really clever nowadays. But so it is here. Though there are undertones that there is an expectation of making account for oneself as well. Adam is unable to resist the calling of the Lord. He openly acknowledges that he had heard God walking in the garden. Under normal circumstances, perhaps a man would greet him. But now the man accounts for his hiding by informing God of his fear. We should notice, though, that Adam does not show his fear for what he had done. Instead, he declares his fear for being naked. It is his shame and nakedness which he states as the reason for his hiding. But as it is, by saying that he was aware of his nakedness, he makes his failure truly known. God, being aware of what has happened, asks not probing questions as though to get an answer he doesn't know. Instead, he asks questions in order for the man to confess what occurred. At which point, the man proceeds to blame someone else entirely. Two, actually. The first blame the man places is at the hands of the woman. She was the one who gave me the fruit. The second blame, though, is against God. For it was God who originally gave Adam the woman to begin with. As such, uh, Wenham, one of the scholars I read, rightly acknowledges that what we see is the results of sin. The first is the breaking relationship closest to Adam with his wife. And the second is the breaking of the relationship he has with God. God's attention turns from the man to the woman. He asks her simply, what is it that you have done? It recognizes the fault of the woman without taking away the fault of the man. Still, the woman must speak to her failure. She, however, does not necessarily take all the blame on herself, does she? Instead, she points to the serpent who deceived. While this is as true as what Adam had said per se, the truth is neither of them were taking credit for their own culpability or their own actions which led to the travesty. Instead, both demur to others and in so doing break the relationships that are set and seen. First between themselves and God, second between each other, but then third with the animal kingdom which they were to rule over. Alrighty, the main point of this section is to describe the fall of humanity. 
The first woman fell into the temptation of the serpent, and in doing so, she broke the commandment given by God to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Her eyes are eventually opened when her husband eats of the fruit. And with this comes a realization of their shame and nakedness, and perhaps even their guilt. Thus, when God comes to the garden, he finds them, seemingly aware of the situation, even before Adam and Eve described what happened. All right, so application points. I actually thought of one long one today. Um, Within today's text, we deal with something that has plagued us ever since its first arrival, and that's temptation. While the text does not explicitly say that the snake was Lucifer, we do know that the devil is attributed for helping with the fall itself in the New Testament. As such, even though it may have been a real serpent, there is some malevolent force behind the scenes. Yet there is something to consider with temptation itself. If we notice, the temptation occurs in a fascinating way. That is, the tempter blatantly twists the word of God from the beginning of the temptation to the end. The tempter tells half-truths, things that we, the reader, can say, yes, but no. It should not surprise us to learn this. Jesus himself dealt with the very same tempter in the wilderness. There the tempter did the exact same thing. He took the word of God, twisted its meaning, purposefully trying to get Jesus off his guard. In Jesus, then, we find another example of the temptation which occurs here in Genesis. When we consider it, then, the scriptures give us two different accounts of such temptations. On the one hand is Adam and Eve, on the other is Christ. It gives us two different responses to the temptation. The first, man and woman's response, or Jesus' response. When it comes to Adam and Eve, we see their folly. While Eve somewhat understood the word of the Lord, she already had doubts about it. She not only had doubts, but she also was already adding to it herself. The additions which she made on her own part helped the tempter tenfold. When she said, we shall not touch it, the tempter had already won the battle. For Eve had already forgotten the truth of it. The tempter's goal was not to tell her the complete truth. He didn't correct her and say, you shall not die if you touch it. All he said was, you shall not surely die. Now we know that touching the fruit would not lead to death. It was breaking the commandment, which was to eat it, which would lead to death. But that is the trick of the tempter. He knew that if she did touch it, and still believing that touching it would lead to death, and then she didn't die, then there will be no fear of eating it either. The tempter, he's clever. The tempter is shrewd, and knew exactly what he was doing with the temptation. Not only did the tempter know the right words, but knew the best way to poke and prod exactly what needed to be in order for the woman to break the commandment on her own right. This is the way of temptation For all of us, whether it is temptation which comes from within, our own temptations, or temptations that come from evil powers of darkness, the devil and his minions, it all comes back to knowing our vulnerabilities. Not only was Eve vulnerable in her lack of knowledge concerning the word of God, but also in her desires. This is done through the tempter by telling her she'll be like God. 
And so it led her to looking at the fruit and finding it appealing to her physically for nourishment and for making one wise. This is the way of sin. For the temptation is to break the commandment. And the appeal is in what lies in the broken commandment, which is sin. Sin does this to us as well. It tells us of the greener grass on the other side. It sparks our interests. It tells us how nice it looks, how good it will feel, how wise we'll be in the end if we follow it. Oh, the mask of life that is painted on the face of death. For as much as we would say that we could do better, the truth is we too fall into temptation. We too fail in keeping God's commandments. We too eat of the fruit every time that we sin. We face our own temptations every day, whether it is blatantly sin or to live in a way which does not glorify our God. We face temptations. We follow where they lead, which is into sin. So the question we must ask is, what can we do? What can we do about the temptations we will surely face? What can give us strength to overcome the temptations which we face? Well, the answer to this can be found in Jesus himself. As we reflected, Jesus also faced the tempter, and in doing so echoed what had occurred in the beginning. The difference, though, Jesus did not fall to temptation. Though the tempter tempted Jesus in the wilderness with all which was pleasing to the eye, which was good for nourishment with the bread, and overall power, just as Eve was tempted, Jesus was able to defeat the tempter instead. How did he do this? The answer is that though the devil misquoted the word and used half-truths to tempt Jesus, Jesus responded with the truth. He responded with the correct understanding of the word of God. Thus we find the first thought, that knowing truth, knowing the word of God, will help us defeat temptation. When we study the Word of God, it gives us insight into our lives. However, we must not be like the tempter by misquoting the Word for our benefit. Nor should we be like the tempter twisting the Word. Instead, we need to know the Word as it is to be understood. We can't abuse the Word to fit our own understanding of who God is or what we want to believe. Instead, we need to conform our beliefs, our knowledge, to the word and understand it it as it is the truth. So it is not enough to know the scriptures to overcome temptation, but knowing the scriptures rightly. It isn't enough for us to only read our Bibles, but we must also seek understanding from it as well. The simple truth is, there are many individuals who fail to seek understanding and instead seek only to know what most benefits them from the scriptures. Let me give you an example. How many times have you heard the phrase, judge not lest ye be judged? I've heard it. Many times this verse is quoted when someone is told something they don't want to hear. (laughs) Isn't it? For example, let's say someone you know is doing something sinful. And you in love warn them saying, you're doing something that is wrong according to the scriptures. Then they respond, judge not lest ye be judged. And then usually you don't have anything to say after that, do you? Because you're like, oh, well then. Well, that happens a lot. 
The problem is that saying that phrase in that kind of a context is doing exactly what the tempter did in the garden and exactly what the tempter did with Jesus in the wilderness. The phrase, judge not lest ye be judged, comes from Matthew 7. The problem is, though, that in context, that means do not judge others hypocritically. That is, do not say, do not do that, and then you go do the same thing. It does not mean seeing someone in sin and encouraging them out of it. That's not what that means. How do we know that this is what the text means? Because right after Jesus says this, he warns of the small narrow gate. He warns of false prophets. He warns of wolves in sheep's clothing. He warns of how we live our lives by figuratively describing it as building one's house on the rock or the sand. In other words, Jesus gives us the correct way to judge ourselves and each other by our lifestyles. By knowing wolves from sheep, we make judgments about that. And that judgment is founded on whether or not they are keeping Jesus' commandment and bearing fruit, which is exactly what the text says. The difference is, though, that Jesus gives us a way to do it rightly rather than hypocritically. Do you see how easy it is? For the oldest trick in the book to come back and haunt us. The truth is, we can all be led astray by these things. We can all be led astray by taking verses out of context to fit whatever belief we want to have. It happens all the time. And we must be wary of doing it ourselves. How certain are you that the verses you have been quoting and those which you have built beliefs around are being properly understood? Is it possible those same verses which were meant to give life are possibly leading to death because of your twisting? That is the second thing about temptation. It always takes what is good and twists it for evil. It doesn't always just come at us negatively. But very often temptation and sin come to us in a way which is pleasing We must be on guard against it because of this. We must be aware, always seeking faithfulness in light of the clear and present danger that comes from within and from without. The scriptures are clear. Temptation is not only an outward problem, but it is also an inward problem. The way to overcome both is with the truth. So be encouraged to do just that. Do not only seek out the word of God, but also to understand the word of God. Do not take things out of context, but understand them within their context. Be encouraged to stand in faithfulness to God and his ways, rather than being influenced by lesser ways. Give into the full truth, not half-truths. In these ways, and following the example of Jesus we will be able to overcome temptations which come upon us. Even though it is hard, we can overcome because Jesus has overcome. It will be him in us which gives us the strength to do so. He is great while we are small. He is strong though we are weak. The fall, it's a dreadful thing. From it, all of us have felt the direct effects of losing paradise lost. And in many ways, we all seem to be wanting to find it again. Yet the only way to do so is to cling to Jesus. For he leads us back through the garden gate. Back in the paradise 
which we all long for. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And the only way through him we can come to the Father. You know, the fall, again, devastating. Next week we're going to see more about the implications of what happened that we discussed today. Um, So I'm going to leave you in suspense. Though I suspect everyone here has already read it. (laughs) Still though, there's a lot to glean. But the truth is, is that Genesis is dealing with something, and that's our origins. It's dealing with, where did we come from? So when other people around you say, oh, where did we come from? Did we come from, you know, random chance? Or did we come from some kind of a design? You can say, well, the scriptures say this. It says that we come from a great designer. And not only did we come from a great designer, we came from a designer who created us to be in his image, man and woman. And that's our origins, and it's a beautiful, wonderful origin story. It is one which places humanity so far high above than some of the other beliefs that we see around us. The problem is, we did what we did in the garden. The problem is, that though we are created in the image of God, we made a mistake by disobeying. Disobedience lead somewhere. God already warned Adam and Eve of this. Disobedience would lead to death. That's the judgment on humanity for disobeying. And so because of that, the fall occurs in this text. And guess what? Everything we always talk about happens right in our eyes. How our relationships, because of sin, are broken with ourselves, each other, the world, God himself. They're broken because of sin. Adam and Eve are the best representatives of this happening. And so the question is, though, if the fall happens and death occurs, what do we do? Well, we need redemption. And the only way that we can receive redemption is going to be as we see when finally that snake's head is crushed by the heel of the seed of woman. And some scholars really do believe that this is a first example of the coming of Christ and the church overall because guess what? We get to partake in that crushing because we're in Christ. And if we're in Christ, we get to fight against the devil too. We don't just sit back. Christ in us fights. And that's our desire. That's the redemption that we get to be part of in a way. It's Christ's redemption through us. And so in the end, that redemption does come through Jesus Christ. He is the one who makes it right. He is the one who turns it around and pushes us, (laughs) carries us lovingly through the garden gate into the redemption, into paradise. It's what he does. And that leads to the glorification. When we receive that which we originally were meant to receive. But at the same time, Even though it all happened this way, even though we experience all this, in the end we can rejoice. Because in the end we know a lot more about ourselves because of it. We know about grace. We know about mercy. We know about love. And so that ever-present question, God, why did you allow this to happen? Maybe it's because if it didn't happen, we wouldn't know so much more about God. 
There will be no grace if we never failed. There will be no reason for mercy if we never failed. But as it is, God shows us mercy, he shows us grace, and he shows us his incomplete and total self and his love. So it's unfortunate, it's sorrowful, and at some points it's depressing because of what we did lose. But we find our hope again, and we find our joy again in Jesus. That's where it's at. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you have accomplished through your son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you so much for the story of this fallen humanity. And while it seems strange for us to thank you for it, the truth is, is that in the end, we still see your son. In the end, even though we see the fall of humanity and this moment of disobedience, we can put ourselves in the same situation because we're there. Because we ourselves have fallen. We ourselves have experienced that tasting of the tree of knowledge that we should never taste, the disobedience that we should never have had. And so, Lord, as we see this, we do not lose hope because our hope is founded in you. So, Lord, give us strength as we continue on day by day and give us the grace necessary for us to overcome the tempter because we know that through your Son, Jesus Christ, we can. Through him we are given the strength to overcome. For he not only teaches us, but he gives his own strength to us, Lord. So continue to do so for us. And may we always remember, while paradise may have been lost, it is regained through Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please rise as we sing our final hymn.